Hi, my name is Lisa Azell. I'm the Federal Society's Vice President for our Lawyers Chapters. And on behalf of all of our colleagues in the National Office, it's my privilege to welcome you to our sixth annual Florida Chapters Conference. This is our largest state conference yet, not just in Florida, but anywhere, with over 900 attendees through the course of the weekend. And this is quadruple our attendance in 2015 when we first started these events. In fact, it's our largest Federal Society meeting outside of the National Lawyers Convention this year. You should all be very proud of the strong, vibrant network you've built here in Florida. When we started these conferences in 2015, we thought these statewide meetings might be an occasional occurrence. This obviously has exceeded our wildest expectations. And in my travels around the country, I get asked more about the Florida Federal Society Network than any of our other state networks. You are a leading example to other chapters around the country. We are very excited to present several engaging and thoughtful panels and talks this weekend including discussions with Jan Crawford and Don McGann on judicial nominations in the Trump administration, the Anti-Federalist, Originalism and Textualism in Practice, and the debate over marijuana law and policy here in Florida. And we are honored to have several of the recent appointees to the 11th Circuit join us for a luncheon discussion, including both of the newest appointees hailing from Florida. And last but not least, we are all thrilled to have Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas join us for a banquet tonight. We promise it'll be an engaging discussion facilitated by our longtime friend and his former law clerk, Judge Greg Katsis, with an introduction by your governor, Ron DeSantis. The Federal Society has attracted a lot of attention in, over these past few years. And despite all of this media, a lot of people still don't realize that most of our operations are not Beltway based. This conference is the best possible example. Our lawyers and student chapters host programs and conferences like this one that truly are at the heart of what this organiza organization seeks to advance. The honest exchange of ideas through respectful debate and discussion on fundamental questions involving the rule of law, federalism, individual liberty, the separation of powers, and limited government. What's particularly noteworthy is that these groups are all driven by, by volunteer pro bono time by thousands of lawyers and students across the country. We are very fortunate to have 10 strong volunteer-driven chapters here in Florida, and it's a state where we have the most active lawyers chapters. With their leadership, we know that the Federal Society in Florida will remain as vibrant, robust, and engaging as it is here today. So thank you all for being here, and thank you for everything you do to promote the ideas of the Federal Society here in Florida. Your dedication and enthusiasm do not go unnoticed. With that, I'm gonna turn things over to Elena Crosby, our Orlando Lawyers Chapter President, to introduce our first discussion. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, it is my distinct honor to introduce uh, these two next speakers. I'm going to start with uh, Don McGann. Prior to joining, rejoining jo Jones Day in 2019, Don served as counsel to the President of the United States, advising John J. Trump on all legal issues concerning the President and his administration. Don also managed the judicial selection process for the President. During Don's tenure, a historic number of judges were appointed to the federal bench, including two Supreme Court justices. In addition, he spearheaded President Trump's deregulation efforts, which resulted in deregulation at record rates. 
Following Don's departure from the White House, the President appointed him to the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States, a nonpartisan independent agency dedicated to promoting improvement to administrative agency processes. Don's accomplishments have been recognized at the highest levels of government. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stated that Don concluded his tenure not only as the best White House counsel I've seen on the job, but more broadly as one of the most successful and consequential aides to any president in record memory. Don was nominated by President George W. Bush in 2008 and confirmed in the Senate by unanimous consent to serve as a member of the Federal Election Commission. He also served as outside counsel to the Committee on House Administration during the 113th and 114th Congresses and as general counsel to the National Republican Congressional Committee. I also have the pleasure of introducing Jan Crawford. Ms. Crawford is CBS News' chief legal correspondent and contributes regularly to the CBS Evening News, CBS This Morning, and Face the Nation, as well as CBS News Radio and CBSNews.com. Jan joined CBS News in October 2009. She has been a regular contributor to CBS News in 2005 to 2006. She is recognized as an authority on the Supreme Court whose 2007 book, Supreme Conflict, The Inside Story of the Struggle for the Control of the United States Supreme Court, gained critical acclaim and became an instant New York Times bestseller. She began covering the court in 1994 for the Chicago Tribune and went on to become a law and political correspondent for all of ABC News programs, a Supreme Court analyst for the News Hour with Jim Lair on PBS, and a legal analyst for CBS News, CBS Evening News, and Face Nation. She has reported on most of the major judicial appointments and confirmation hearings of the past 15 years and amassed crucial sources, resources in the United States excuse me, in the White House, the Justice Department, and Congress along the way. Please join me in welcoming Don McGahn and John Jan Crawford. Just quite a stroll. Yeah, it's good. We can make our grand entrance. I think we're hot. Huh? All right, you're going that side, you said? Yeah, but they can hear us because we're hot. Oh, yeah. You know, a hot mic will get you in trouble, yes. and I have learned that the hard way, believe me. That's why I'm around. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Elena, for that introduction. Um, and Don, thank you for doing this and for um, agreeing to let me ask you a few questions. I, first of all, have to say, I sound I'm not sure horrible. I agreed. I just saw it on the program. And oh, you just got They told me to show it. up, and here I am. Orlando's always great in January. That's what I hear. <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to say, I know I sound horrible. I have been a little under the weather. I have some tea. There's no bourbon in that yet. And um, I think we'll be able to get through 45 minutes, but you have to talk a lot more than me, which, you know, is the way it should be. And I want to assure you, those of you I have the pleasure to meet later, I have not been to China or anywhere near anywhere for China. So I think we should be okay. So, um, uh, <laughs> and, and we, it was, don't blame me. No. You know, we just, I just saw you over there, so it's not. Um, all right, so we got the introduction. Uh, obviously, you're a big deal guy in Washington, even before you became White House counsel, top you know, campaign lawyers in the country, uh, time on the FEC, uh, kind of 
uh, responsible for lo loosening a lot of the regulations on campaign spending, and you become the president's campaign lawyer, and then on to uh, White House counsel. And I guess I kind of just wanted to start by, I mean, this is about as open-ended and broad as you're going to get. What does the White House counsel do? <laughs> what do you do? It, it isn't the kind of job anyone knows about unless you've been in Washington or really follow politics. Right? It's not the sort of thing fourth graders write on that report. What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> um, the, the counsel to the president is probably the closest legal advisor to the president. The main job is advising the president on his authorities other, under the Constitution statutes, regs to the extent that they apply or not apply norms, that sort of thing. Um, other things include ethical compliance, primarily for the White House staff. You also provide legal counsel to the various White House councils, like Domestic Policy Council, National Security Council, uh, Economic Council, and try to provide for them the, the legal framework to help them make sound policy recommendations to the president. Um, and then you also are involved in vetting nominees. And in my case, I was heavily involved in basically was the senior staffer in charge of judicial selection. So was that the, your favorite part of the job? I wish I spent more time on it. It was my favorite part. I probably spent about 5% on it. 5%? I mean, yeah, if that. Yeah, I, I had a great team. I had a number of people in the office who were able to track things day to day. Um, I always get nervous when the sound guy's frantically looking at it. People are looking around, like doing the we can't hear you thing. Can you guys hear us? No. See? Oh, my gosh. You would not believe what you just missed back there in the back of the room. I mean, it was, I, I've got to, it's breaking news. <laughs> it is, because that's what I like to do, make news. <laughs> How are we doing on sound? Can you hear me? That better? Just move the lavalier up. Now we go with the jet. Okay. Wait, wait. Okay. What? Well, you tell me. Is it working? Use this. Is that better? Okay. You, maybe you should like kind of walk around while you're. That's where this is headed. <laughs> just kind of stroll um, through the crowd. All right. So Don was saying, kind of, uh, I was asking, like, what do you do as White House Counsel? And he. Had, I'll blow through it again. Yeah, so the be, counsel to the president advises the president on his authorities under the Constitution, statutes, other applicable rules and regulations. Uh, we also provide legal advice to the staff uh, when it comes to making policy recommendations to Domestic Policy Council, National Security Council, the Economic Council. There's all these councils in the in the White House and on the on the campus. Uh, we provide legal support for them so that they kind of make sound policy decisions that are lawful, uh, hopefully. Uh, we also are involved in ethical compliance, personal financial disclosures and, and fascinating stuff like that. Uh, and also vet nominees that have to go through the Senate. Uh, and in my case, I, as counsel, I was the one who, uh, for the president, ran the judicial selection process. Now, you said that was your probably your most uh, favorite part of the job. Probably. I only spent about 5% of my time on it, but I, uh, uh, it, was, it was certainly something that I uh, wanted to do going in and definitely tried to put our best effort into it. What was your least favorite? The rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an easy job in ordinary times. It's uh, it's uh, 
it's it's a unique job. There, there's only one president at a time, and there's only one counsel to the president. So it's it's not the sort of job where you walk in and there's an instruction manual on the shelf that says here's how you do this or here's how you do that. Uh, you have to dig in the precedent. A lot of the precedent is not judicial precedent. It's precedent within the executive branch or among the legislative and executive branches. Uh, and what intellectually, the rest of the job was fascinating. The idea you have to go back and, and look at what Thomas Jefferson did in a particular situation to try to see if you can justify a particular course of action is something that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a job that where, uh, people have lasted a long time. The average shelf life is maybe 13 months. Uh, so I made it almost two years. So I actually was, was one of the longer serving. If you take out Fred Fielding, who served as counsel to the president for six years under Reagan, that really drops the, the, the monthly total significantly lower. So had you planned to leave after a couple of years? That was a thought going in. You never planned to leave. Because the, thing, the circumstances of how you left made it, at least some in the media suggested. Well, the media suggest a lot of things. <laughs> so that's, that's what they do. Um, uh, you know, all these jobs are not lifetime jobs. They're all uh, jobs that remind me of uh, a consultant that I used to work with, kind of an older, crusty guy no longer does campaigns, but he said, you take any of these jobs in Washington, your mail's able to occupant, right? You, people come to you and they say you're great all of a sudden, and they, they still don't like you. You're the same person you were the day before. And those people that say you're great won't be there the day you get off the job. So I went in as someone um, who had been in Washington his whole career, had been in the government before, had been around Capitol Hill quite a bit, and knew that you're only gonna be there for a certain period of time and you give it your best shot while you're there and when it's time to go, it's time to go. And I, you know, kind of the first two years is usually the first breaking point and I decided that was probably the best time to, to go back and, and see the sun once in a while. <laughs> when you um, uh, decided to, to take the job, was there any uh, former occupant of the office, previous White House counsel that you kind of admired or you, kind of saw as a model? Yes. I mean, you mentioned Fielding. but Fielding, I, Fielding, I called him White House Counsel Emeritus. Mm -hmm. um, Fred was very, very helpful, both in me, my thinking on how to stand up the office and how to do the job and just on the job. He would always pick up the phone when I called, regardless of what time of day it was or what day of the week it was. Uh, Boyden Gray was great. Um, spent he gave me a lot of his time uh, helping me think through how to do it. A.B. Culverhouse was wonderful as well. Uh, Bob Bauer, who served as, uh, Bob loves when I mention his name, um, <laughs> served as Obama's White House counsel for a period of time. I've known Bob a long time. We, we've been sort of equal opposite polar forces and campaigns and elections for a long time. Uh, so he, he gave me some, some very interesting insights. Um, Harriet Myers came up and, and gave me some of her time, which was very nice. And then uh, there, were, there were others, uh, both sides of the aisle, either on the phone or email. So I, I, I tried to reach out and get a sense of what went well for people and what didn't work out for people. I tried to take the best and, and, and try to avoid the worst. The other person was never actually counsel to the president. His counselor and attorney general was Ed Meese. Um, really saw Meese as a personal hero. I actually met him at a Federalist Society dinner when I first moved to Washington, D.C. when I was young. I was so excited I called my mom that night. I had just moved to D.C. I thought every weekend was going to be like this. <laughs> it was not. 
but uh, I've gotten to know him over the years and and how he how his vision for judicial selection, legal policy, how the administrative state ought to function, how the executive branch ought to function was something that I really uh, paid paid a lot of attention to, and that was something that was a heavy influence on how I viewed my role. What was um, what was President Trump like as a client? <laughs> One of the, uh, I, <laughs> I've represented a lot of politicians. Mm -hmm. He's, he goes through decision trees faster than anyone I've ever seen to get to where he thinks the, the situation's gonna go. And he has an uncanny knack of actually getting it right. And there's times where I would think, this is just not gonna work. And other people would say, there's no way this is gonna work. And it turns out he was right. So he has an entirely different way of thinking than the typical politician, which is probably why he got elected. Um, and he's not a corporate CEO, you know, board of directors kind of businessman. He's his own. He's his own thing, and and you know we we got along great in the campaign. We got along pretty good in the White House. We had a very candid relationship, a unique relationship, I think, among the staff. Uh, but he thinks differently than anybody else I've represented, and it was really fascinating to watch him in action and then try to do a mixture of keeping up, try to stay one step ahead, try to try to give him the information he needs to assess the situation. He's not the kind of client where you can go in and say, here's how it's gonna be. He's never lived his life that way. That's not how he's been successful. You have to, you have to give him information and, and then he has to mull it over and, and he discusses things in his own way. He's not, he's not one of these guys who goes from point A to point B to point C. Uh, he he has a different way of thinking, and it's really a fascinating thing to see up close and personal. When you say he can go through a decision tree quicker than anyone you've seen, and he thinks differently, approaches things differently, is that one reason why, and I know there are a lot of reasons why, um, people get things about Trump so wrong? I mean, when you see some of the reports, and certainly in my business, and I mean, I'll be the first to say that we get a lot wrong, um, you know, that he doesn't pay attention, he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, what do people get wrong about Donald Trump? If I had a dollar for every time someone said, this isn't how we did it in the Bush White House, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd be taking you all to Epcot tomorrow with all those dollars. <laughs> um, to, try to, to try to judge him based upon pre-existing assumptions of how the president is supposed to function on a day-to-day -day basis is just not... Right. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. The president has his authority under the Constitution. Uh, Congress occasionally tries to rein it in via statute. Executive branch likes to think that acknowledges a power. Legislative branch thinks that they're granting a power. That's a whole other discussion. There might be a panel on that later. Who knows? <laughs> um, but uh, he uh, is constantly judged against sort of a fake uh, metric based upon kind of a ruling class beltway sort of version of how it ought to be. Um, and a lot of the news that you see is really these process stories about, oh my God, you know, he, this, this wouldn't, Obama didn't do it this way. Mm -hmm. 
he kind of ran on not doing it that way, right? I mean, the, the people knew what they were going to get. And it's amazing how what he's done as president is remarkably similar to what he said on the campaign trail. It's not his fault that the chattering class didn't listen. Mm -hmm. Or didn't believe him. Or didn't believe him. Mm -hmm. uh, or just assumed this was never going to work out. Um, but it did, and he actually is doing the things he said he was going to do. And, you know, he has a certain way of doing it. And if he does it his way, things, turn, tend, things tend, to, tend to work out. Other people want to do it a different way. That, that gives fodder for the media to sort of judge him on these fake standards that really have nothing to do with whether he's achieving results or not. What do you think it's like in your office, in your former office now? I mean, when you think about all that you had on your plate, your favorite part of your job, 5% was on judges. And you could say that's why you know, McConnell says you're the most consequential, successful aide in modern political history. Yeah, he's got the Blarney. He's got uh, you know, fellow mix. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, not the Blarney, but you know. Um, I mean, what do you think that it's, what, what do you think that it's like now? I mean, all of that that you had on your plate, plus now they're essentially having like a white collar defense Yeah, I, you know, look, I, I'm not there. I don't, I don't know. Uh, we had an oversight team. We actually, even with Republican controls, still had letters and things to respond to. Uh, there were other things going on uh, when I was there that have sort of concluded, but always seemed to linger. Um, you know, I, I think I think their focus is on the impeachment thing, obviously, mm -hmm. right? If you see them on TV, Pat Cipollone's there, Mike Papora's there, uh, uh, Pat Philbin's there. You know, Pat's put together a real good core team there. Mm -hmm. uh, Papora, I know him; he's a star. Philbin, I know him; he's a star. Uh, you know, and and Pat's a very real lawyer. So, uh, my guess is they still have a other part of the office continuing to move the other parts of the president's agenda forward. And that's really the key. When something goes wrong, it can't be just that to the exclusion of everything else. You have to keep other things moving. Uh, I just saw the other day OMB's announcing that they're gonna do a review of enforcement procedures throughout the uh, uh, executive branch, which is great. That shows they're keeping their eye on the prize. They're still focused on kind of reg regulatory reform. Uh, and it shows that merely because there's something going on in Capitol Hill, that doesn't stop the business of governing. So I, I have no idea what it's like day to day because I'm not there. Uh, I know what it was like when I was there. And the trick is you got to have a good team. And, and when, you're, when you can't be in the office, you have, a, have to have lieutenants who are able to carry it out. And it looks like they're, they're doing that quite well. You know, you were with the president. I mean, obviously, it's his campaign lawyer. Um, and then with him when he first went in the White House, and, you know, important key moments in his presidency. Did you ever have the sense, and I've always wondered this, did you ever have the sense that when he came into office, he had plans, he had ideas, did he ever think, you know, this could be kind of a, an olive branch to Democrats? I mean, did he ever have a chance? I mean, it seems like the investigation started right away, the quote, Russia collusion stuff started right away. What makes me think of this question is when you're talking about how he was so unconventional, he didn't do things the way everybody else did. He was an outsider. Could outsiders ever succeed in Washington? Did he ever have a real chance? I reject the premise of the question if you're just suggesting he hasn't succeeded. Um, well, okay, he's right now. I'm, let me then rephrase that. Can outsiders, 
Well, you say he's gotten a lot done. Look, I mean, he's been impeached. Look, he's sitting. I mean, you know, the White House counsel's team is sitting up there, you know, in the well of the Senate right, right now. He, look, he, he came in and there was there was just massive resistance everywhere mm-hmm. uh, on both sides of the aisle. And people were very skeptical. And and when you when you inherit. Well, you these, have members of the media crying on election night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. That was that was and uh, not tears of joy like when yeah, that was, President that, Obama that was, was elected. That was, that was too bad for, for them. Um, but I'm just thinking when you talk, think about the scope of the resistance and obviously when you see some of the former, you know, President Obama's former advisors who've now you know become regular commentators on cable news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Former taxpayer funded pundits. Now they <laughs> now they just go on on cable shows and talk. Um, usually it's people without any clients have to do TV. <laughs> well, you don't really see me on TV. Um, I have work to do. Uh, what was the question? Oh, did he ever have a chance? Uh, you know, he's, he's plowed through, but honestly, no, he didn't have a chance. I mean, it, it, the, the machinery of government was not uh, enthusiastic, shall we say, about his arrival. Um, and it took a while for people to realize that he won <laughs> he was the president, uh, and you could just feel the 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 resistance. And it was it was not just it was not just those that you would anticipate, those who politically disagree with him. There were still the never Trumpers running around, and all these other people who who just couldn't get over it. Um, and uh, you know they they some a couple still can't get over it. Look, he's unconventional. He's got the tweets and says some things and all that. But at the end of the day, when you get down to the substance, he's actually got a lot done, even with all the headwinds that he inherited uh, and was was faced with when he came in. Well, let's talk about that. 187 Article Three judges, a quarter of the federal appellate bench. Speaking of getting stuff done. Yeah. Right. Um, and you were kind of the chief architect of that. The judicial some of strategy. that was even done with bipartisan support. Um, one key, we came in very fast. We did not sit around and, and think about it. Uh, we engaged with the Senate quite a bit, even before swearing in, particularly with Democratic senators. And you see the results of that. You look at, uh, for example, in Illinois, uh, we've got a pretty good slate, okay slate of district judges on balance. Martha Packhold's now a district judge, clerk for Clarence Thomas. Um, uh, Mike Scudder's on the circuit court. Um, <laughs> And that was dealing with, uh, you know, two Democratic senators did pretty well there. New York, uh, we did okay. We got a deal on district judges, circuit judges looking very strong. And, you know, with Illinois, the, Senate, the Democratic senators supported the president's nominees for circuit court. In New York, they didn't. But the district court level, we actually had a pretty fair process, and, and it actually got done. I think part of it is that sort of negotiation does not happen on TV. There's no TV cameras. It's, it's, it's very much a direct sort of thing. Uh, I had an advantage, uh, two big advantages. One, the president put a lot of trust in me to do it. And people knew when they talked to me, that was going to be a binding commitment. Um, and it wasn't a situation where they could shop around and try to get a better deal. Uh, president knows how to make deals, and he knows it. You have somebody shopping around for a better deal. That's not going to let you. That's going to take away your leverage. Um, and two, I'd been in D.C. so long and represented so many elected officials, including a lot of senators. I had a certain ability to sort of speak speak Senate, and I could understand how senators had gotten elected, what their constituencies looked like, 
how they could, uh, you know, what they could, what they could go for, what they couldn't go for. And I never really wanted to present a, to a senator something that I hadn't thought through from their their point of view. So I think that was something that helped us. But getting a quick start uh, made a big difference. Uh, the president was very committed on this. He ran on it. Uh, talked about it quite a bit. There was polling data after the election that said there were a bunch of sort of undecided voters. Amazing to imagine there's anyone undecided left in America, but undecided voters, they didn't, like Hillary Clinton, weren't really sold on Trump, but they liked what he was saying about the courts, and they gave him the nod. And, uh, and uh, you know, so far, it's, it's really been, been one of his major successes. Well, you know, that's, I mean, the Supreme Court historically has never really been a factor in people's electoral choices in the, at the ballot box. This was a great exception, I guess, potentially because of the, the list. I mean, how did that kind of, you were the lawyer on the campaign at that time, do you, how did the list come together and did you have any part in kind of encouraging that or the development of that? Because as you remember, I mean, there were people, again, who they were still well, up until November, weren't really taking Trump seriously, but certainly earlier in the campaign. <laughs> November, like, of, November of which year? Right, 2020, yeah. But I mean, earlier in the campaign, I mean, people were, you know, oh yeah, he's going to, what, not Judge Judy? I mean, who's Trump going to put on the Supreme Court? So, I mean, that list was significant. It was, it was. Um, the, the, short, the short version of the long story is um, <laughs> the president had already, had already discussed the judges. He's someone who's tussled with City Hall his whole career. He's had to deal with red tape. Mm -hmm. uh, he litigates a lot uh, and uh, understood that, you know, judges who kind of make it up as they go along or substitute their own views for that of what the law actually says tend to be bad news. And it's very tough for ordinary citizens to conduct themselves and plan their affairs when they sort of have this moving target where it's not a rule of law, it's sort of a multi-factor balancing test. Um, so even before the list, he thought about it. Uh, Justice, but you helped him frame Justice Scalia, the multi-factor balance. Just <laughs> Justice Scalia passed, um, and that created uh, an issue that quickly became a campaign issue. It was inevitable. Um, and, and that night, there was a primary debate, and the first question was, what are you going to do in the Supreme Court? Um, and... Uh, president actually had an answer, and he, he was not a stock answer. He actually was able to put out some names of the kind of people he was going to look at. One sitting here in the front row, Bill Pryor. Uh, Diane Sykes was the other name he mentioned. Um, we had already kind of on our own uh, thought about who, who it would be, and then um, I talked to Leonard Leo. Uh, I actually talked to Jonathan Bunch first. Um, that story is kind of well known when uh, I had not met Jonathan at that point, but I talked to him during the Iowa caucus, got on the phone and he was curious if the campaign sort of thought about judicial selection. I said, oh, yeah, we have someone we have someone on board helping us out. He has a lot of a lot of experience with this. He's, he's done it. He's done it in the past. And he said, well, who is I? I said, well, it's John Sununu. And um, thanks for the three people to get that joke. And um, um, for those of you not old enough, what was your reaction? <laughs> you know, Sunu is credited with picking David Souter for the Supreme Court. So, uh, poor Jonathan, uh, I could hear the audible gasp on the on the other end of the phone, and I said, "No, we're just we're just kidding. We actually we're we're pretty good. I'm, I was the president of my chapter, Federal Society chapter in law school. Everything will be fine." Um, and he he didn't know what to make of me. Um, 
So, you know, I talk, I, I, I'd known Leonard a long time. Leonard had some ideas. I had some ideas. Leonard had a very good sense of who, who was real and who just showed up the day after an election. You see this mm -hmm. phenomenon in D.C. where there's a, there's a whole phalanx of people, uh, many of whom I had never met until the day after the election, who show up the day after the election and say, I've been with you the whole time. I want to be this or that. And, you know, you should appoint me to this or that. Um, Leonard was very good at knowing who was actually not in that category. Um, and I kind of brought to it a sense of how the Senate would play and, 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 and that sort of thing. So it was a collaborative thing uh, where we ended up developing the list. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, the president did not put it out during the primary. I'd expected he would put it out in the primary because primaries usually, the conventional wisdom is you have to appear very conservative and then track to the middle once you get to be the nominee. Um, is in, in, illustrating what I said earlier, where he does things that I think that's kind of backwards. He waits until he's the presumptive nominee, and then his basic first move is dropping the Supreme Court list. So the first move as a general election candidate was not tacking to the middle. It was it was going it was going pretty pretty right in your face on who he was going to look to to put on the Supreme Court should he have the opportunity. So. Um, you know, that's that's a situation where he saw something everybody else thought was kind of backwards and it just worked great. I mean, the list itself um, took a lot of time to put together. We tried to read everybody's opinions who was on the list. Some people were not on the first list because they had too much paper. And then we put out a second list. Uh, well, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, uh, well, Brett, exactly. But I was thinking more Justice Gorsuch because he his, right, right. he had quite a bit of paper. Um, and uh, the first list was people I, of the sort. Second list, it was a, a definitive list, and Gorsuch ended up on the second list. But, but the vision of making it public was 100% Trump's. Internally, what was his thinking behind that? Well, I think I think he thought people would be focused on it, and I think he thought uh, it mattered. And I think he does sometimes he does things that all the political consultants say don't matter, and he proves them wrong. So uh, you know, it, what makes him do a lot of what he does? Who knows? But <laughs> He's, he, he, he continues to land on his feet um, uh, with the chattering class very nervous about how he seems to be tumbling, but then somehow lands it. So I think his thinking was he wanted to show he was serious about it. He wanted to emphasize that, that uh, it mattered, um, and uh, it certainly uh, did. And, you know, here, here we, we kind of know what happened after the election, and here we are. Well, I mean, obviously, when you were saying earlier, you know, could it, when I said my ill-formed question, um, you know, did the, could the, did the president ever have a chance to succeed? I mean, a president's most lasting legacy is his nominations to the Supreme Court. I mean, those, you know, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and, and know, the circuits, knows, right? I mean, and it, the it, all the actions about Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme Court, but they take less than 100 cases a year. So really the circuit courts for most, if not virtually all cases, Circuit courts are the last resort. Right. And he has done a remarkable job of uh, filling vacancies. And look, we can't, we have to pause and we have to, re we have to remember he inherited a lot of vacancies because Senator McConnell showed a lot of courage by locking it down at the 11th hour uh, when it was clear this was going to be a campaign issue and the voters should probably have a say in who was going to be on the bench. Uh, so. You know, it was amazing. It's one of the few examples of a really, a, a, in modern Washington, of a real team effort. Um, 
where you know it took McConnell to do his thing, the president to have his vision, and then us broadly defined to help help flesh out you know the talent that uh, would would fill would fit the bill. You know, when you have this list. Um, and, when, you know, we've seen how previous presidents did things and they sit down with kind of you get the get the potential nominees to a handful and then the president will interview a certain, you know, four or five, whatever. Um, how did that work? How did how did it come to be Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh? How did the president come to these are my, these are the two? At the end of the day, I mean, he, were they he, different? I mean, I think they different. must have been They're They're different. Um, Similar, similar in certain ways, different in other ways. I think that um, the processes for each were, were different in that the process for the the uh, for Justice Scalia's seat was run basically before swearing in, so that was done during the transition period, uh, and the interviews and whatnot were all done and, and all the prep, uh, and you know the president inherited a vacancy on day one and a week later rolled out a nominee. Um, and again, we had, we had the usual chattering class saying, take your time, wait, you know, do this, do that. And, you know, we kind of picked the date and, and off we went uh, because we thought getting it to the Senate sooner rather than later was probably a, a smart move. Things in DC, if they take your time, sometimes things die uh, and things become more, more, more uh, contentious than they need to be. Um, the Kavanaugh uh, process was different because president had been president for a while. There was White House. There was much more of a, of a track record of success with the Senate. So there were some differences uh, internally. But at the end of the day, the president really was looking for, for people who had, had great credentials, a real track record. Um, uh, you know, the, the old conventional wisdom was avoid a paper trail. Right. Well, that's president, how we got Suter. President Trump wants a paper trail. He wants to know. He wants to know what he's getting, what he's sending to the Senate, what the American people are getting. Um, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have a mountain of of opinions. Um, he also wants. He also was looking for people that showed that they had some courage. They could. They could. They could not. They wouldn't. They wouldn't back down. They had some sort of conviction, uh, and that they were around long enough that they weren't going to. Washington, we have this phrase called growing in office, right? I think evolve. Evolving, right? There's, I, I did not grow in, in office. I, I continue to shrink, I think, um, uh, as, does, as does the president, right? So we don't see growing in office as a compliment. Um, so, you know, both of them had been on the bench for, for, for an extended period of time. So there, there was a, it, the die was, was pretty much cast. Um, so I, I think the, the consistency there is, that is the is the three or four factors I mentioned as to what he was looking for. He wasn't he wasn't looking for a political splash. There was not this idea of well, how's this going to how the voters are going to react to this person or that mm -hmm. person. When it comes to judges, he really he really wanted what he thought was the best, and he wanted folks who were really committed to being serious about legal text and and really trying to get to the bottom of it. And if you look at the list. You see that. I've already mentioned a couple names. You look at uh, uh, Tom Lee out of Utah. He has some opinions that are just flawless cases of statutory construction. If you look at the list, it's all, it's, it was all hidden there in plain view. They all have something that shows that they understand how to read and construe legal text. Uh, even if it reaches a result that I may not like, the judge may not like, you may not like, 
somebody here may like, but you know, that they actually have a consistent method of judging. Um, you know, I, I hate baseball analogies because sometimes confirmation processes use things like umpires and things, but the strike zone should be a consistent strike zone. You don't want someone all of a sudden kind of expanding or contracting the strike zone depending on the politics of the day. So the president was very, very focused on people who were not going to be anything other than what they appeared to be. And then you also had to be able to get them through the Senate. Then there's that, right, the Senate. And the dis Democrats' right. decision to filibuster, yeah, that wasn't that, was, that a gift for? That was bizarre. Um, that was just, I just chalked that up to Trump derangement syndrome. Right, I, it seemed I, like I just a, think an enormous blender, That was a political mistake. blender. Yeah, I, I would not have done that. I would have gotten, I would have let cloture happen on Gorsuch mm -hmm. and save it for potentially the next time. Because you're replacing a, a conservative icon. Right. It wasn't going to change right. the balance of right. the court. And, you know, it was, if they didn't, if they didn't know it was going to happen, you know, it, it would have been, it, it, they, they, they might have had a better chance making some hay over the filibuster down the road than right out of the gate. Um, you know, Harry Reid blew it up for circuit judges. President Obama had lost virtually every case in the D.C. Circuit on any sort of administrative power type issues. The overreach was just everywhere. The D.C. Circuit had beaten that back. Um, and the so-called nuclear option was really designed to load up the D.C. Circuit. So all of a sudden, previous administrations started to win. Um, and I, I, guess, I guess it was short-term worth it for them, but you know, here we are. So it was, it was bizarre to me at the time, but. That's a good point because people forget that at the time of the nomination, it was still was not decided whether or not you had to get the supermajority before you got the majority. And that, that's counter to the tradition, right? Clarence Thomas got a final vote even though his total was well shy of a filibuster-proof majority. That, it, that was not something that was done where they would start beginning to filibuster judges for the, for the Supreme Court. They would occasionally try to make hay over this nominee or that nominee, uh, but this the filibuster idea really took hold in the 2000s. Um, I'll just keep talking. Yeah, please. Um, uh, you know, where when the Democrats got control of the Senate, they started to oppose President Bush's nominees. Well, they started opposing any potential nom any nominee who might be a potential Supreme Court pick, like Miguel Estrada. Right. Right. Bill Pryor. Um, and. Bill Pryor and a host of others. And you see this now, right? We, we had a pretty good head, head of steam in the first year um, where uh, we had a great chairman. We had Chuck Grassley chairing the Judiciary Committee, did a masterful job, and he was the right guy at the right time because the guy has a tremendous amount of integrity and, and <coughs> senators know he has integrity. He cares very much about the Senate and he was the guy that could actually have the hearings in a way that, that, that produced positive results, but he would have multiple nominees at the same time and the like to keep the, keep the process moving. And first couple waves, the, the, the Democrats didn't really catch on, but then it became uber partisan and anybody that they suspected may have, have any potential to go up to you know, the Supreme Court or have a good career, they really went after hard. Amulf the Parr, Amy Barrett, the list goes on and on. You know, they really just locked it up. Uh, you know, Greg Katzis barely made it through. I mean, Katzis, really? You can't, I mean, how do you vote against Katzis? Um, but they did. 
Uh, and it's, you know, it's a compliment to the ones that went down to the wire and basically got, you know, you basically all, you know, we had that Mike Pence kind of ready to go on a moment's notice. It's really, did you I really? think, what's that? You did. You never, you never know. Yeah. 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 It breaks a tie. Mm -hmm. And some of them were, were, were that tight. Um, uh, you know, it's really a testament to, uh, I think the strength of the nominees because they all now have been through a tough thing. Like the modern circuit court process looks like the Supreme Court process of maybe 20, 30 years ago. All these are barn burners. All these are opposition research people following people around. All these are looking for the gotcha moment. Um, and that's not Do how I it- I the early, early 2000s. You know, like that it is now. It started, it started, but, but that, was, that was still much more of a process game. It took Kavanaugh forever to get on the DC circuit, but he finally did. Um, they just blocked Estrada. It wasn't quite the barn burners that you now see in the current Senate, where it is really made for TV theater, where they're just looking to trip people up and sort of raise issues that really don't have anything to do with being judges. And look, let, let's, let's, let's put a finer point on it. Uh, Amy Barrett, you know, Catholics believe, Catholic beliefs were questioned openly by members of the, of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right? The ranking members said the dogma lives loudly in you. Mm -hmm. We now have mugs with their picture that says the dogma lives loudly. I think they're available online um, uh, with the complimentary T-shirt that matches. But um, what is that? That's, that didn't happen in the 2000s. Right? That is, that's a new level of holy cow, now we're going there. Mm -hmm. um, and then another senator tried to clean it up. I think he thought he was trying to clean up. He made it worse, asked if she was an Orthodox Catholic or what kind of Catholic she was. Really? That's what, that was, that's what we're asking about? I mean, wow. That's getting kind of personal. Uh, and you see this nominee after nominee, and I really, it just the, the folks that go through this, I always, I always say, I went through the Senate once, never again. And for those who are willing to put their, put their hat in the ring, go through the background check, and go through the Senate process, we, we owe them all a debt of gratitude because it's not easy on them, not easy on their families, not easy on their kids, and it's, it's not easy on their parents. Uh, I remember when I went through my background check for the FEC, the FBI agent called my parents, and I did not read them in on the fact that I was going through a background check. So, <laughs> you know, my dad gets on the phone, the FBI, I want to ask you about your son. Well, his, you know, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I made sure I told nominees that you should let people know the <laughs> FBI is going to be calling around uh, because, uh, you know, people get a little spooked. So it's not an easy thing to do, but it's really become hyperpartisan and really has become kind of nasty. And it's not the way it's always been. Steve Breyer got through on the First Circuit. He was nominated after Reagan was elected and confirmed before Reagan took office uh, back in. Now, I'm not saying that we should we should do that, that's sort of the other extreme. But it wasn't long ago, or at least for circuit judges, for the most part, the Senate could kind of say, yeah, they're qualified, they should be judges. Not our choice, president's choice, but they should at least you know, have a hearing and go on the bench. Now everything is just uber, uber hardline, burn down the, burn down the place. Um, did the president ever consider withdrawing Kavanaugh's nomination? No. Now, there were articles the morning of what I call Kavanaugh II, um, where there were people, White House staff, leaking and things mm -hmm. saying that they were, you know, plan B. And I thought that's odd because the White House 
the part that's doing that is on Capitol Hill, and we're not doing any of that. So no, you look, that's the thing about President Trump. Other people probably would have thought about it. They might even have gotten close to doing it and saying, oh, this is, this is gonna be tricky. It, you know, he's, once he makes up his mind, he makes up his mind, and uh, he, I don't, he never had any doubt. He stuck with it. Well, what's the lesson of that confirmation battle? History will teach what the lesson is. The future will, will, will show the lesson. Is this the new norm? Is this how it's always going to be? Could be. It could be. Um, and what is that? Better mean? lessons are if you, you know, if you believe in something and you stick with it, you can still get it done. You shouldn't cut and run and hide. Uh, but you know, I, I, my fear is that the confirmation process will continue down this path of hyperpartisanship, where the questions in the hearings oftentimes are not questions or speeches, sort of a question marks at the end, not really designed to, to make the nominee look qualified or otherwise reasonable, but designed merely to, to get a soundbite on TV. Well, no, but that's um, been long part of the process. Hmm? That's been long, that's the US Senate. Not forever. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I disagree. I disagree. I watch have. the film of Bork. Watch the film of Thomas. Okay. I the have. hearing set up. You had you had the senators at a table at a normal height. You had the nominee, maybe maybe from me to halfway between me and you in the front row at a table of the same height. You did not have this big table and 5,000 cameras rolling around at the nominee's feet the whole time and a dais that's like up here and, and all this boomy room and the protesters screaming and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. It hasn't been like it is now. It's different now. It's much more, it's much, much more a, a, a production. Mm -hmm. Now, the flip side is I wish the American people could be privy a little bit more. I don't think they can because it would hurt the candor. But the discussions the nominees have with actual senators, the senators, for the most part, most, come in prepared, substantive questions. It's cordial, even if they disagree. And you know that that particular senator is never going to vote for the nominee. Everyone's nice to each other. They all shake hands. There's substantive questions. There's thoughtful exchange. And for the most part, those do not leak. There've been a couple instances lately where people have run out and tried to put words in a nominee's mouth. Um, you saw that with Gorsuch, right? Well, yeah, if we, yeah, Blumenthal did that. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, and that caused a little bit of a of a ruckus. Uh, I was in the meeting, so I know, I know, I know, I know what was said. Um, but those meetings are fascinating. Uh, watching someone like Susan Collins go through judicial records. I mean, she, she knows her stuff. She comes in prepared. You have to be ready to go for Collins. Other senators are a little lighter, you know, but they, they tend to be varying degrees of substance and some of them are quite substantive, but it's not the sort of thing that would ever really play in a hearing that is more designed for the theatrics. And it's not, it's not the theatrics just didn't happen yesterday or last year. It's been a gradual mm -hmm. movement that direction. Um, and you know, it's been, it's been, it's been hyped up. Well, certainly by the time we got to Roberts and Alito. Yes. I mean, you didn't have the protesters in those hearings like you do now. It changed in the nineties. The nineties sort of is when it kind of drifted into more of a, more of a show. Um, you know, Ginsburg and Breyer hearings were, um, uh, everyone I think kind of knew the result going in and that became more of a, of a made for TV production. Um, 
And they, yeah, the two, particularly Alito's hearing got nasty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unnecessarily so. And that's another brilliant guy. I mean, it, you know, you're really going to come after Alito? Yeah, I guess they, they tried. They tried. I mean, ironically, Feingold was the guy trying to filibuster. Uh, and there were TV ads run in his state saying, don't filibuster Alito. And those ads were banned under McCain-Feingold. So his law banned those ads because they referenced Feingold, who happened to be a candidate within a certain time period. And then the Wisconsin Right to Life folks who were trying to run the ads sued. And that became Wisconsin Right to Life versus FEC. So that's actually about Feingold's law banning ads, talking about Feingold trying to trying to filibuster Alito, who then got on the court and sort of succeeded O'Connor, who, you know, if you kind of do the campaign finance reform worldview, uh, that's the swing vote on on it. So mm-hmm. there you go. All roads lead to campaign finance. Well, and and <laughs> let's I let's go to that point. I mean, did you I mean, this is obviously now I'm going to have time for one question on the administrative state. Um, but how did your time what what influenced your outlook on that? I was, was it your time at the FEC? I mean, that was a big part of it. I, 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 I defended a lot of people in front of administrative agencies, oftentimes in the areas of political speech. Um, and it seemed like the, 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 the game was rigged. It seemed like you go to these agencies and the staff would make their recommendations. They usually didn't have an opportunity to brief the matter to the actual decision maker that was appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate to make these decisions. Uh, oftentimes these decisions were rubber stamped and when they go to court, you get deference. The the government would get deference. So the tie would go to the friendly regulator, not the private citizen. It just really kind of wore me down. Um, And it just seemed manifestly unfair. Some of this started to change. The 2000s, the DC Circuit started to take chunks out of this. Kavanaugh, in a large part, was the architect of much of that. Then the DC Circuit kind of didn't do that anymore. Uh, But the Supreme Court started getting into it. Sackett versus EPA is a case that it illustrates the point where the idea that the poor Sacketts could not even get a hearing and the EPA said they couldn't even go to court over the fact that the EPA was trying to find them every day for developing their own land. What's significant about Sackett isn't so much that the Sacketts developed their land, that the case had to go to the Supreme Court so they could at least be heard. Um, would, so one would think would be kind of a basic. You, you would think that would be kind of basic due favorite, process, yeah. right? Uh, but it apparently was not in the world of the administrative state. My view had, had become that the, the bureaucracy had become its own branch of the government. It was extra constitutional. It didn't really fit into, into the idea of separation of powers. They were one part legislative policymakers, one part enforcement, one part judge. And then you never really had a chance to have a separate kind of day. Uh, and that's still the case, unfortunately. Uh, FTC is still this way. Um, and that's an area where Democrats and Republicans can kind of come together on, it seems. So, so, sometimes. sometimes. Sometimes they can. Uh, they should. They should. Um, you know, the FTC, the antitrust, it, um, DOJ does some, the FTC does some. There's some kind of agreement. If you actually really get into the weeds, it doesn't really seem like it's a bright line kind of process. It seems like you kind of get the lucky draw. And if you get the lucky draw and you go to the Department of Justice, I would never think I'd say that's the lucky draw, but at least you get to go to an Article Three judge at some point and try your case. 
You go to the FTC, you end up in front of their ALJ system, the staff recommendation becomes the governing norm. And if you actually research it, that once the staff kind of recommends, the commission always backs up the staff. It's Isn't it way. like 100%? It's like 100% over 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, so that should, right there should tell you. And that should tell you. And there's, a, there's actually somebody who's now sued on this, a company called Axon. Uh, they make the tasers. They've sued. Uh, they tried to acquire a small company. The FTC said no. Setting that, the merits of that aside, the FTC then tried to say they have to not only not only um, uh, uh, cut the company loose, they have to hand over their software to create essentially, essentially a clone company that can then be a competitor. Somehow the antitrust laws not only require you to just not do things that are anti-competitive, you have to affirmatively create competition. And it's all done in this bureaucratic morass uh, of the administrative state. And now they've gone to court and you know, there's been a little bit of ink on this case, but this is the kind of case that some of us here probably should pay attention to because it really gets at the heart of the idea that first you have an equal protection problem because you have DOJ versus FTC and whichever coin flip you win or lose, you can get an entirely different result. And then you have a due process problem because the government always wins. And then whatever merits there are or lack thereof to the FTC's case is gonna be its own thing on the merits. So that's an example of that. Um, another, Another thing that, uh, coming out of political law, uh, I run into this, and nobody likes robocalls, let me begin with that. But for political speech, it's a good way to get your message out and make sure people go to vote. The, 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 protect, the, the Telephone Protection Act, Consumer Protection Act, TCPA, for years the F FCC had read this way broad, way broad. 11th Circuit just finally said they're flat wrong. Um, Bill Pryor was on the panel. Judge Sutton wrote the opinion, masterpiece. You should read this case, it just came down. Uh, another case out of the Fourth Circuit's going to the Supreme Court on it. It's an example of agencies reading statutes and getting so far away from statutory text, people forget to even look at the statute and then courts kind of defer. And then next thing you know, you have a whole cottage industry of regulatory stuff that really has no basis in anything that an elected official ever agreed on. Um, well, unfortunately, you're getting time. The time? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess we're going to have to end it there. I'm going to just, can I just ask him one final question? Um, we're getting a look at judgment, but I'll, 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 I'll keep so it tight. I'll be really quick. Um, well, I just, when I was getting ready to, to have this conversation with you, I always love to go back and read what people wrote, you know, for three years, you know, during the campaign. And so one of the articles that I read said, and it was just people in Washington just wringing their hands. I mean, just wringing their hands that Don McGahn was going to go work for the president and as his campaign lawyer. And why would he, as one said, why would he lend his visual credibility to Trump in such a way that could damage his reputation for the long term? I mean, that was, that was what one you know, of your unnamed uh, lawyers in Washington was saying when you were at the campaign lawyer. Yeah, I think that person worked at the RNC. <laughs> Wait, I guess if you could just say the final thought, I mean. That wasn't know. a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on him. Yeah. I mean, what is this? I guess, what's your reaction to that you then know, and I, now? And then what's the takeaway from I've, that? I've and thrown then, my thank career, you all very look, much. I've said this before. I, I, I've thrown my career away every 18 months since I graduated law school. I've always, <laughs> I've always tended to take on tough clients and always been not of the traditional norm of how people succeed in Washington. And I've always taken kind of a flyer every so often. And I do it because oftentimes I believe in what that person's trying to do, or I just, even if I 
don't believe in what they're doing, what the government's doing to them is worth the fight. Um, I thought Trump could win. Uh, I was, I was, I, my view was the parties had de-aligned. The, the usual candidates were not going to win. Uh, and uh, after getting to know Mr. Trump, he, he had some ideas and sort of a different view that I thought, if presented, uh, uh, would actually resonate with enough people to, to get the job done. Uh, the traditional chattering class, ruling class, consultant class in D.C. didn't see it coming. Uh, and I, that was after the New Hampshire primary. Uh, he won the New Hampshire primary. He invited us all up on the stage. Um, I was the last one up, so I was the, I was the kind of the one on the end. And I, in the New York Times picture, I ended up being right behind him. And people said, oh, my God, what's he doing? Now, it's one thing to represent him. Why are you actually standing up there? And whatever that brilliant quote was. Um, you know, so I say to that person, you know, let's just, well, say Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Oldham, Katzis, Rao, uh, uh, Trevor McFadden's here. I'd have to give a shout out to him at the district court level. Through par, the list goes on and on. 187 I, would take I a while. We don't have bounds. <laughs> let's just go through all the, the, the bounds and get there. But Kyle Duncan, they go down the list. I, that's that's my answer to whoever the genius was that said, I can't believe Don's standing next to Donald Trump. Um, any prediction for 2020? There will be an election. <laughs> It'll be in November, sort of. But with early vote, it's kind of in October now. There's more election season, not election day. Uh, you know, I mean, right now, if I had to bet a dollar and go to Vegas, I'd tell people put it on Trump. A lot can change. You know, I got to do my usual DC shuffle on that. But right now, you see him sort of crystallizing the issues that uh, he's going to run on, and he's, he's starting to remind people of the things that matter. And, and uh, you know, I think the constant attacks um, certainly haven't killed him. They've only made him stronger. And I think at this point, What's unique is that his numbers have not moved. He doesn't have the usual arc of popularity, and he's he's been really remarkably steady on his on his popularity. And it's not just the base. The media like say, well, that's just his base. It's not just the base, right? Other people. Um, and uh, so right now, he's doing okay. Democrats are really putting on a clinic on on their primaries, and that'll that'll probably drag on a little bit longer than they wish. But this really isn't the format to get into the partisan stuff. But uh, there will be an election. That's my prediction. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Sorry we went a little long.